Alright, we are back for the second episode of War Horrid War, where we will be discussing the Kronstadt Rebellion. Alright, yeah, Kronstadt. We're jumping ahead a good, what, a good 125 years or so? 130 years or so up until 1921. Kronstadt is really interesting because I think it forms... I mean, like, I study the Russian Revolution, but I think in general... Anybody who tells you they really understand the revolu- the Russian Revolution well is al- always kind of bullshitting you because it's insanely complicated and things happen. Like you read accounts where it's like day by day. You think a month has gone by and a day has gone by. And Kronstadt is no exception. Um, it For anybody who's not familiar, it forms the, the base itself. So just the geography of this uh, this this island in the Gulf of Finland, about roughly, let's say, 15 kilometers from St. Petersburg. So St. Petersburg is at the end of the Gulf of Finland, which is quite narrow and which goes into the Baltic Sea. But right kind of guarding St. Petersburg is this island at Kronstadt that has not only a fortress, multiple fortresses that ring it around, um, but also in the period of time that we're interested in, basically a fully functioning town as well too that counts up to 50,000 people Um, so it it is a city unto itself that exists almost like a moon in the orbit if um, like a satellite if St. Petersburg Petrograd is the earth Kronstadt is kind of like the moon that orbits it is um, but also very autonomous as well too Uh, they have large stores so that'll all, uh, all play into it. And St. Petersburg is like the city, right? Like it is like uh, the city of Russia at this time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Moscow is not. Moscow will become the capital in. Oh, they're gonna. Lenin's gonna move it during the Civil War. I think in 1919 it goes from Petrograd to Moscow. Um, but St. Petersburg has been the capital since Peter the Great founded the city. So for 200 years of Russian history, it's the capital. Uh, it's way more cosmopolitan. It's turned towards the world. I mean, in Russian literature, still the image, I mean, there's just these two cities. St. Petersburg is the advanced city of Dostoevsky. Moscow is the kind of farmer backwater <laughs> of, <Yeah>. of Tolstoy. <laughs> um so yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the most, also and most importantly, it's the most Europeanized city. This is like in the, the Russian entry Empire. into the rot of the Romanovs. Oh right? my god! Basically, yeah, like yeah, the fact for that sure. they all speak French and <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that they are so cosmopolitan and so disconnected from the Russian, the everyday Russians' experience, yeah. and that you have this city that is connected to the Baltic, so that they can connect with all the other parts of Europe that aren't Russia. Yeah. Basically. And well, the interesting thing is that, and I'll, so I'll, I'll jump in cause I don't want to, I, I want to try to get into it cause I'm going to try to jump through a few events quite quickly, unfortunately. So I don't know if anybody's listening probably will be pissed that I'm jumping over some key events, but well, definitely like said, that like, it's such like a big tome that we, oh, can, yeah, we can definitely yeah. on this podcast, go back and talk about other yeah. events. So like, yeah, let's just like For get sure. into it. But speaking about the rod of the aristocracy, that's something like I'm going to start in 1905 and that's basically like Rasputin's coming to town in 1906 or he's just been invited and that's like beginning of the ultimate rot of this people who don't know how would you sum up Rasputin 
He is a Rasputin is a Siberian a Siberian monk who basically ingratiates himself um, into the Russian court uh, through the Tsar Nicholas II, who's the Tsar of Russia uh, up until um, the up until the revolution in 1917. Um, Nicholas II is an infamously weak character. Uh, he was one description I read of him recently was that he would have been much better as a the postman of a small town than as a tsar. He was never really fit. Um, his father uh, kind of lorded over him and knew that he was unfit to be an emperor. He never really got interested in the task of being an emperor. And his wife, um, Alexandra, who was German, and the interesting thing about this kind of disconnect, she, she being German, she, as sometimes people do when they're trying to find a new identity, became ultra-Russian. Uh, and got really deep into Russian orthodoxy, um, but also coupled with a kind of interesting mysticism that a lot of aristocrats were into in general in Europe. So that's why, I mean, all seances. The stuff, yeah. All the occult stuff, yeah, they love that. And Rasputin comes into the scene, and he comes in, um, and he really, I think, the, the, the main hook, as far as I know, the main hook that gets him uh, deeply kind of... Um, ensconced into the the royal family is that he's able um the the tsar's son is a hemophiliac and he's able to cure him of one of his episodes at one point so this basically solidifies him as you know this guy is uh, this guy is we we need to keep him around and rasputin will gain more and more influence he'll be seen as a basically this kind of shadow influencer on the court through Alexandra and then influencing Nicholas II. Um, and he just kind of, I mean, he'll be used as a symbol. He'll he'll become a very powerful symbol for revolutionaries, not just, um, not just radical, far-left communist revolutionaries, but, I mean, liberals as well, too, just even uh, generals. Everybody will see this as a symptom of just this total detachment of the Russian aristocracy. And I think the Russian aristocracy, I'll maybe make one last point on it. It's funny because they are really, I mean, this is 19, and even in Russia, which is kind of a backwater, when we're in the revolution in 1917, like this is, like we were just talking about, the, France got rid of their monarch late 18th century. They're living in this world. They're just a complete anachronism. Like it doesn't make any more sense. So they just become this insane caricature. And, I mean, Trotsky in his History of the Russian Revolution just drags them through the dirt for so long. His quotes on the... I unfortunately don't have any here, but reading a bit of Trotsky, he drags Nicholas II and just ex- like excrocreates them. It's, it's hilarious. So, Kronstadt, as I said, a very important naval base fortress, but it's also important to keep in mind it's a town in itself. Um and I'll come back to this as well, the, the, popular, uh, the popular imagination of the uh, Kronstadt, uh, Kronstadt Rebellion uh, kind of makes it seem like it's this kind of fortress on an island. It's, it's a vibrant, active city. There are, uh, it's the historic location of Russia's Baltic fleet, uh, which is, of course, one of their most important fleets. Their access uh, to 
uh, the Baltic Sea to the North Sea. Um, it counted, as of February 1917, it counted 32,000 troops, so 20,000 soldiers along with 12,000 sailors. And as I mentioned, the 50,000 civilians. So just to jump right in, uh, Kronstadt, I'll, how I'll go through this is, I think it goes through three phases of development that'll culminate in the rebellion of 1921. And the first kind of first uprising or first rebellion is in 1905. Um, so 1905, it's the first uprising and mutiny of the Kronstadt sailor, sailors. Uh, general strikes are roiling through Russia and more specifically in St. Petersburg, which has been the locus of uh, discontent, um, hunger, um, general political insatisfaction. So there's still no uh, parliamentary representation at this time. And as we mentioned, Nicholas II is completely uninterested. He's detached. He's spending most of his time in the imperial estate outside of the city. Um, so there's a lot going on in 1905, and it's finally going to break out. Um, it's going to reach a crescendo with the horrible kind of outcome of the Russo-Japanese War, which is more of the cherry on top of the social crisis uh, Sunday. But for the Kronstadt sailors, it plays a big part. So this war was intended to serve almost as a kind of bomb to the growing social crisis. Uh, even though the imperial ministers were split um, uh, as to actually going to war, for, for a bit of context, Russia at the time was basically just completing its kind of eastern expansion. So they had a similar thing to the Wild West, but for them it was the Wild East. And they're running into Japan, which is also having this imperial moment expanding, um, egged on by the fact or enticed by the fact that China is in total disintegration and is a new kind of imperial playground. Uh, so a lot of claims being made. The Russians are still completing the Trans-Siberian, and they're also completing an important Manchurian link, which still exists to this day. Uh, you can take it. It goes all the way to Beijing. The, the Russians have ambitions in Manchuria, and they're coming to a head against Japan. Japan is still seen in the minds of the, uh, of the European powers as being the second tier, even though the, the second tier nation, even though they've, uh, they've modernized quite quickly. Well, there's like this, this, um, intellectual current Europe of, of like race science yeah. at the time where they think that non-Europeans are inherently, uh, inferior, uh, in terms of intelligence and in terms of organizing. And so there's this feeling that, Hey, if we just sail on them, They'll, they'll collapse and then we'll have this glorious victory and we'll nip this problem in the bud and, um, and we'll be good. Exactly. Yeah. And things don't quite turn out that way for Russia, mainly because Japan is uh, well equipped, their fleet is modernized, and most importantly, they're fighting close to home. Whereas Russia is defending uh, these faraway lands that it basically just has one very very shoddy rail line to resupply and the other option is to go through uh, the Suez Canal but since at the time Japan is a uh, British ally and British aren't too friendly with the Russians Suez is denied so basically any type of naval reinforcements have to go 
below the Horn of Africa. They have to make this insane journey. And this is what the Baltic fleet does in 1905. It's going to sail, just make this insane trip, get all the way to the Tushima Straits, which is, uh, if my memory serves me well, the passage between Japan and Korea. Some, it's a narrow strait that is going to get them to the besieged um, city of Port Arthur, where the bulk of the Russian uh, troops are. And when they get to the Tsushima Straits, the Japanese fleet just annihilates uh, the Baltic fleet. You couldn't ask for a better warning uh, call than have to take all your ships around the Horn of oh, Africa. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the Japanese had <laughs> exactly. all the time in the world to prepare. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> we're not, I mean, we're not at the end of the 18th century where maybe you could hope that methods of communication would be in your favor. <laughs> you, you, they, they know that you're coming. They're prepared for you. They know you're coming. They know the size of your fleet. They know everything yeah. you're going to have to d- deal with. You're yeah. fighting on your home turf. I mean, it just... Yeah. It's just made for the Japanese to score a huge victory. Exactly. And I mean, the Russians are, again, like you said, by the time you've done this this journey, you don't have a lot of, you're going uh, through the Indian Ocean. So again, you're, you're not really finding ports of resupply everywhere you want. This is not a leisurely journey. You're already, your sailors are already completely exhausted by the time they get there. So this annihilation of the Baltic fleet will reverberate back um into Kronstadt and these the the sailors who are present here um there's a little bit less known on their political motivations uh, this is kind of an, an earlier phase of the um of the political i guess you could call it the political awakening of a lot of these soldiers and sailors but it's still enough to coupled with the massive social crisis it's still it's enough to basically make the mutiny and this will lead to one of the most famous incidents the takeover of the battleship Potemkin which will be made into a famous movie by uh, Sergei Eisenstein in the 30s one of the greatest movies of all time and uh, several other mutinies will occur throughout the spring and summer so this is going on uh, the crisis is going to last until October and this is until the Tsar agrees to some mild political reforms uh, Chief among them is the creation of the Duma, although the Duma, uh, which is the Russian word for uh, thinking, uh, so basically the Russian parliament is created, although it has very little power, the, the Tsar is still going to um, uh, monopolize most uh, most control, so they can basically, they can't even, I don't even think the Duma can propose legislation. It's basically just a talking chamber, uh, kind of like the European Parliament now. Actually, <laughs> um, it's kind of like how like the initial English Parliament was very, very oh, exactly. controlled yeah. by the monarchy. Like it existed yeah. as a, a means of uh, communicating between the elites, but it didn't really have any legislative power or exactly. executive power. Yeah. Um, so again, this will prompt a reaction in October from some parts of the Kronstadt garrison. Um, who are still active, some of them who are still in active mutiny, they're going to meet, roughly 5,000 sailors are going to meet at Anchor Square, which is going to become one of the most important places or the kind of symbolic meeting place um, on the island fortress. And they're going to make some pretty simple demands. Some of them, so better food, better uniforms, ease of discipline and regimentation, um, some of them are again very simple. I mentioned the low level of kind of political 
consciousness, so they ask for having access to utensils. That gives you an idea of what the conditions were like. Um, Kronstadt was known as the Sakhalin of the West, and this is the infamous uh, Tsarist labor camp in Siberia. So it was known as being sent basically to serve at Kronstadt was to was similar to a sentence in a in a Tsarist uh, a Tsarist gulag. Again, very old school treating the peasants like garbage yeah. and having your army composed of people that you basically uh, just oppress into being in the army yeah. rather than <laughs> inspiring them. Yeah. To. And the, the, the attitudes of the officers are completely hilarious. I think I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit here, but one of them, the, the commander who's, who will eventually be kind of dragged out in 1917 says, I don't understand why they don't listen to me. I, I beat them for a week instead of a day, and I imprison them instead of simply taking away their rations. He's like, I don't get it. They don't respond to my discipline. Um, <laughs> one kind of funny story from 1905 is one of their main demands is access to wine. They're very, like, that'll become throughout the history of Kronstadt like the access to alcohol the restriction of alcohol will be a big political issue <laughs> and they make a they make a request for access free access to the wine stores for all uh, serving members on the island and at one point these uh, a small detachment of sailors who are uh, protesting one morning when they're supposed to show up to start their daily duties they decide we're going to protest. Uh, they haven't accepted our demands yet, so they get arrested, and they are so they're taken away, and they're taken under convoy to the railway station for transport to an outlying outlying fort. And as they're being taken away, they go by a crowd of sailors, gunners, and civilians who are themselves busy breaking into a wine store. So they're like, hey, guys, we're fighting for your right for wine. And then they're like, hey, we're stealing wine. And it just leads to this kind of uprising. It snowballs from there. And it eventually is the majority of the garrison participating in this uprising to free these arrested soldiers. So... In 1905, it never really evolves past this, and I don't want to spend any more time here, but what it does mean for um, 1917 and 1921 is in the minds of a lot of the active revolutionaries in Russian society, there's the social, uh, socialist revolutionaries, the SRs, as well as Bolsheviks, Lenin among them, who will see uh, these uprising and say uh, Kronstadt is um, in any type of future revolution uh, Kronstadt is key uh, because they see the potential and they see the almost the unharnessed revolutionary potential that's there. Um, the response to, of the Tsarist authorities to the events of 1905 and into the year of 1906 is basically to create just worse conditions to increase the heat. So increase Double the down on your Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is, I mean, it's just the worst. They have no other, when we're talking about like, there's like authoritarian regimes or these absolutist regimes. They have no other, they often have no other instincts except mm-hmm. repression and surveillance. Um, it seems like in the case of the, the Russian Royalists, um, they were really bad at being brutal. Like they had a brutal instinct, but they weren't able to follow through because they weren't smart enough to be strategically brutal. They were yeah, just generally yeah, exactly, cruel exactly. and <laughs> yeah, just yeah. like indifferent to everybody, and yeah. they just isolated themselves. Exactly. exactly. If you're gonna be if you're gonna be cruel, you have to at least have your coalition of goons yeah. who can be cruel on your behalf. That's how a dictator stays in power. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh man, there. I mean, they're just everything about the the tsarist regime at this point is like sheer incompetence, and <laughs> they they also incompetently suppress uh, suppress the the Kronstadt sailors, and they they at least correctly perceive it as being a direct threat to power, and. Um, Admiral Viren, who uh, will eventually come in here, will eventually say that when reviewing the ships, he feels like he is uh, he's reviewing the enemy ship. The sailors are so overtly hostile. Um, so, 1905, there's a destruction of the Baltic fleet that occurs, and this first uprising. So, some of these sailors, most of these sailors who, of course, will not, um, they won't be present in uh, in 1921 where we get to the third uh, the third rebellion but what does happen is that since the fleet is destroyed and there's this increased rebellion uh, Russia is um, forced to modernize at a very very quick rate so they introduce uh, a lot of new they're building uh, very new very modern battleships torpedo boats um, dreadnoughts cruisers because in that kind of pre-1914 period, there's there's the naval race between uh, Germany and Great Britain, but there's an overall just kind of explosion. The naval warfare is seen as being one of the, the pivotal kind of keys to power. Russia is not a naval power, but they understand that they will need to keep a pace. Um, and it's because that's how you, when you have naval power, you can project your power. It's exactly. not like having an army yep. where you're kind of stuck to wherever your neighbors are. But yep. this is you can go around the world and you can yep. impose your will. And it's still shown today with the, the Chinese and the Indians trying to modernize their own navies so that then they can join basically the the club of the first world with, with their advanced navies. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's still, I mean, it's still... And we'll see in World War One that a lot of these fleets will just get either annihilated or not sure their purposes. Well, even in but, World War Two, they have oh yeah, World War Two like, for sure. One yeah. of the Nazi capital ships, they either like they they join the war late and then they're like immediately blown up yeah. by uh, like uh, one tiny yeah. dive bomber. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like the Turbits or yeah, or the the Bismarck or yeah. Or in the, the Pacific, you just get, you know, Good aircraft idea. carriers that can just send out one aircraft carrier a load of the planes yeah. with <laughs> torpedoes, and that's it. It's over, yeah. Yeah. And what this, so what this modernization will do is um, bring in an influx of, uh, it will create a requirement for highly skilled, uh, literate, uh, technically knowledgeable uh, sailors. They already need, so these new recruits to serve on these battleships will need a baseline of, of literacy and of knowledge of mathematics, uh, of algebra. Um, so between 1904 and 1916, just kind of general statistics, 84% of the recruits uh, were literate, with another 10% being semi-literate. These are the naval recruits. Uh, comparatively, in 1913, 68% of army recruits were literate. So it's a significantly, it's a significantly bigger gap. And then these recruits are then receiving also additional training on top of, um, you know, they're not just being used how to being taught how to learn uh, how to use a rifle. They're they're really learning to become. Some of them are becoming electricians. They're becoming torpedo boat operators. Um, they're they're going to be eventually kind of decried. Uh, by the 
Kronstadt Police Department as being half intellectuals, so kind of a slight on them. They're neither intellectuals nor, nor sailors, they're just wannabes of both. Um, the Also what's really uh, important is the class composition of Kronstadt. So 31% of the recruits were from what was considered to be the heavy industrial working classes. So. Um, you know, guys who were working in steel factories. These are like machinists and stuff? Exactly, yeah. Um, 23% from what's considered light industry and unskilled laborers. So also industrial workers, but with fewer skills. Um, are they still bringing in people as uh, prison labor, or is they, have they phased that out at this point? Have they moved to a more modern system of labor? Are they actually uh, higher I'm technical... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too sure. I think these are. If these would be industrial workers, they'd be from the Petrograd area, mm. uh, the peasants. So there is a peasant. There's about a 21 or 25 percent uh, proportion of peasants here. Some of the peasants are being coerced into it. What are those people doing? Are, are these, um, these general well civilians of the town and the? Yeah, so they would be. In some cases, they would form uh, just lower-ranking ensigns coming in. Mm. Um, so there's still only a quarter of them, but there's still, I mean, if they represent a quarter, but if close to 95% are literate, there's still maybe smarter peasants than most. <laughs> um, at the same, so the, kind of the, the big difference here is at the same period in the army, only 3% were from the industrial working classes. So the class composition of these Kronstadt sailors was uh, quite different from the army and quite different from Russian society as well, too. They're basically forming an elite technical core. Exactly, yeah. But they also distress these guys. Um, so again, the Kronstadt Police Department uh, will advise heavily against recruiting from the industrial, the heavy industrial and light industrial working classes. Um, and in some of the reports, they'll say that they've been through the, this is a quote, the corrupting school of the factory atmosphere. <laughs> so early Bolshevism. Oh, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's most of the context here is that uh, a, a bit of context is that factories are places where you become, um, especially in, in, in Russia, but I mean, in Germany, it's the same thing. You become uh, radicalized. Yeah. Uh, heavy presence of labor, uh, labor unions in Russia, they're pretty sure they're illegal at this time, but you'd have a Bolshevik agitator in most of your factories so you'd be exposed to literature to propaganda all this stuff and all these guys now can read Karl Marx because oh, they're exactly. literate oh yeah and they love sharing it around I mean like, that's all they have to do um, and instructors were complaining so in 1913 they were complaining that all the recruits so instructors who were giving advanced classes were saying these recruits are poisoned with revolutionary thought and again the, the, the half intellectuals comment that I mentioned as well too um the other factor that adds to this kind of almost boiling pot of revolutionary energy is that a lot of these sailors are also, since they're in the Baltic fleet, they have deployments to Western ports. So it's similar a little bit to the Decembrists, um, who were the Russian officers who fought Napoleon, who ended up hanging out in Paris cafes, who come back. They are poisoned by the Western, <laughs> by Western society. By ideas and like not being beaten by <laughs> exactly, your officer class. <laughs> yeah. yeah, by not being in prison while you're in the army. <laughs> um, and, and these, so a, a lot of these are emerging officers and these officers who are being trained in this, in this period from 1906 to uh, throughout World War I up until 1917 is going to create a, an almost second 
tier of the officer class. So there's still on Kronstadt itself, there's still an aristocratic caste, but it's now dueling with both the enlisted men who are radicalized and this new kind of um, proletarian officer class is emerging as well too. So in World War One, I'm just gonna go over that quickly here. World War One, I, I think, um, and if you want to jump in here, I think it's just a general catastrophe for Russia. It starts out all right, yeah. and then it just just devolves. Um, there's just lose so much land, oh, so yeah. many men, yeah. and it just no one wants to fight it, and there's no proper organization of any kind of counter strategy to Germany. And so even though Germany <laughs> is having to fight this horrible war on the on the Western Front, they're still managing to push deep into Russia. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then Russia is suffering from uprisings from within, and, and Germany has a hand in sending Lenin back to yeah. <laughs> foment dissent within Russia. <laughs> the infamous. That would be an interesting story, his his, his train, train journey. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. It's a story for another time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are multiple mutinies um, and uprisings among uh, among soldiers throughout World War One. Um, they mostly have, again, a kind of a nationalistic tinge. So in the case of Kronstadt, there's a small uprising against where they uh, arrest and imprison officers with German names. And however, throughout 1915 and 1916, Bolshevik and the socialist revolutionary organizations uh, become more pronounced on the island and attempts, serious attempts are made to bring all the radical elements of Kronstadt under one revolutionary roof. And this is prior to 1917. And again, the military governor of the time, Admiral Viren, um, this is at the point where he'll describe the review of a cruiser as though he was on an enemy ship. And he'll say Kronstadt is, uh, is a powder keg. And he almost recommends turning it into an actual prison because there is such a level of distrust uh, towards the sailors and the soldiers on Kronstadt. One quick note I'll just make here again, the, the SRs, the Socialist Revolutionaries, for the context of 1917, they're left-wing revolutionaries, but that are uh, very much anchored in the peasant traditions of Russia. So what would you say? Would you say there's like four main groups of the Russian Revolution? That's what I would think. I would say yeah. like yeah. the Mensheviks yeah. were like the liberals. Yeah. They, huh. want, they want communism or socialism, but they want it by going through a period of liberal development first yeah. to modernize Russia, and then they think they can bring about a socialist utopia. You have the Bolsheviks, who are the basically uh, ingratiated with the proletariat urban working class, as well as the they they come to be the in charge of the lower Russian officer and and army. Uh, army units um and then you have the srs like you're saying who are kind of a broad movement yeah some of them are more on the right spectrum and would probably prefer more of a liberal revolution first or some sort of kind of like nationalist revolution first and then you have the ones on the left who are with the agrarians and who do really well with the peasants and then there's kind of the wild card of the anarchists. The anarchists, who are exactly. Yeah. Kind of regionally composed. They're not yeah. as coherent as the other three, but they are super influential throughout revolutionary Russia. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think I think maybe a fourth group in there, just the liberal 
the 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 liberals general under liberal, general like liberals. Think that that's yeah. like the best end state is to be a yeah. liberal state like yeah. the rest of Europe. Exactly. Yeah. And we're hoping just to get basically a parliament and have a uh, liberal capitalist democracy. Oh yeah, no, I think that's a great. Uh, I think that's a, a great description of those four of those four groups. And again, maybe I'll give a quick overview. I think for people who are don't have the general kind of mental conception of the Russian Revolution, because I'll. You know, we're, now we're arriving in February of 1917. World War One's still going on. Basically, massive uprisings uh, due to the ongoing war, due to just again a general social social crisis is exploding, exploding, and that will explode in Petrograd in the month of February. And between February and October 1917, there were seen as there's a February Revolution and the October Revolution. And like you said, at first, there's the takeover by the liberals who form basically a provisional government. That to them is their end state they're trying to maintain. But they never have any actual power. And by October 1917, the Bolsheviks will have taken power. They'll have done this um, mainly because they gain control of the Soviets, which are just Soviet is the word for Russian word for council. Uh, and up until October 1917, there was the principle of dual power. So this liberal provisional government always had to uh, manage, interact. Uh, it's this kind of, it's never clearly defined. Sometimes they, uh, they try to develop relative spheres of autonomy, but it's basically shared power between the workers and peasant Soviets. So actual, in some instances, I mean, it's extremely democratic super following principles of direct democracy and then on the other hand this liberal government that's trying to manage a modern state so that's the battle that's going on between february and october 1917 between liberals and revolutionaries in russia now in Kronstadt, like you said the broad appeal of the sr i don't want to get into too much the political makeup in the rest of russia but in Kronstadt, the srs are the most present ones despite the heavy industrial base because they have just the most broadly appealing the, i don't think the bolshevik message is ever that appealing um to the kronstadt sailors and i'll get that into that a, a bit more in detail they still are very sympathetic uh, the peasants among them are sympathetic to the sr message um the more um educated uh sailors are also more sympathetic to the sr and they're they're attracted to the there's a bit of a libertarian aspect to it as well too they're they'll yeah. continuously come back to that idea it seems just like uh, philosophically and ideologically the, the the divide is that the bolsheviks uh, are very much in favor of a top-down sort of uh s sort of organizing principle and yeah. so that works well with their main constituents who are army people who are used yeah. to a hierarchy yeah. and to unions and factories which also have a hierarchy exactly whereas the srs are uh, more philosophically aligned with the peasants who are more communal in nature and for uh, you know anarchist type groups like the Kronstadt sailors who um, are very grassroots and who are creating this movement by consensus from the ground up and so it makes sense that they would gravitate more towards the SR message yeah exactly and uh, and again like you said the Bolshevik message is also tied up in that idea of authority but also of the revolutionary vanguard where they will literally drag um, people into the next phase of history. 
because it, in the context of Russia, which is not an industrial state, it's still very much an agrarian state. It's not. It's not a state that Marx would designate as one fit for uh, communist revolution. Germany was always the one. And just in terms of practical impact, what, what we see happening in this period uh, when the Bolsheviks start taking over uh, control of parts of Russia is that to feed this industrial push to modernize Russia so that they can create a communist state, they, um, they end up uh, reforming the agrarian economy so that they can... Uh, extract as much uh, food as possible for the cities and so you end up having peasant rebellions that really threatens the potential stability of a post-royalist Russia and this definitely spooks the Bolsheviks and uh, sort of emboldens the SRs because they are all about direct democracy and about responding to the needs of people and if the peasants uh, the peasants should have more access to the resources that they create and they should not be deprived for the sake of the growth of Russia's industrial yeah, capabilities exactly. and industri- and Russia's cities that yeah. they should c- they should control and take advantage of more of their own personal wealth yeah and which is something that'll come that idea of that peasant control will come up and be a huge concern for the sailors in 1921, but I'll get to that here. So in 1917, um, in February of 1917, I'll have to be specific with the months at this point here, in February of 1917, the Kronstadt sailors and soldiers um, are not used to repress the uprisings that are going on in Petrograd. The main reason is that the commanders are... They all believe that they're just going to join up with the popular classes. So Kronstadt is turned against itself. Admiral Viren, the commander, uh, is going to forbid any public gatherings and orders machine guns facing the main road access to the island. So there are two kind of road accesses that come to the island. Uh, Other than that, it's just sheer ice in the winter and obviously uh, water after that. Um, And machine guns facing the main squares. Nonetheless, this is not going to deter the just the general population, the workers, sailors, and soldiers of Kronstadt who are eventually going to rise up. And one of their first victims is uh, going to be Admiral Viram himself. So he meets an, an unfortunately comical fate because he uh, wakes up. He lives in the kind of, he has a nice uh, kind of palace home on the island and he wakes up one morning and he looks out the window and there is this giant mob of sailors and soldiers and just uh adders who are yelling for him to come out. So he comes down and he's still wearing his, uh, his pajamas and he basically stands in the square and everything kind of goes quiet for a while and he yells, attention, and there's a silence and then everybody bursts out laughing at the same time at him. <laughs> when the veneer is broken. Oh, exactly, yeah. The, I, uh, just those hilarious moments where like the authority just yeah. melts away and you're just this ridiculous figure. So they grab him, they bring him to Anchor Square and they're saying, hey, we're going to execute you now. Like this, there's no, There are no trials for these things at this point. Um, they also bring around his chief of the chancellery, this guy by the name of Pikun, and they bring them together. They're about to be officer. They're, they're about to be executed, along with 51 officers that they have also brought along with them. And Viren at this moment turns, so he's kind of tied up, and he turns to Pekun and he he says, "Oh well, at least in our very last moments, 
you were a great friend and we get to die together. And Pequen just kind of pushes him away and says, I never had anything to do with you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had no say. Like All the decision is basically just saying oh everything that bad that happened here is your fault and he's saved. They take him away and then they execute Viren. <laughs> Still in his pajamas. That is amazing. Yeah. So, oh my God. No honor, honor among thieves. Oh, right? no, no, no. <laughs> and I mean, hey, good for him because he, he yeah. survived. I don't know what happens. I'm sure he's he's thrown into prison. He probably, he probably doesn't bad make it out of the revolution. Oh, no, no. None of those guys sure. did. They for killed sure. so many of them. Yeah. But he, I mean, he gets out of that. Uh, Lived I mean, another day at least. Exactly. Um, and uh, as I said, they, they have these officers. So they, they'll kill in February 1917, 51 officers will be killed. Um, they'll also round up police officers and they'll also round up uh, secretly, secret police spies just summarily execute them um there's not all much the worst people that they've been pl- that they've just been seething at oh, yeah, for like months or hate. years yeah. who've just been <laughs> like abusing their authority and yeah. just being total pricks and now the day of judgment is yeah. <laughs> and, and it's sparing no one it's surprising because there i mean 51 officers that's a lot of people for sure to be killed but it wasn't the entire like it, it, they were relatively it wasn't a full out orgy of violence they were quite selective they knew who, who they were going after they they knew they had to de- decapitate the police department they knew who the secret police spies were as well too um so real good secret police oh, yeah, exactly <laughs> just in like trench coats <laughs> at the street corner <laughs> you hear about these bolsheviks <laughs> so resistance to the uprising is mainly confined to the police uh, they just kind of barricaded themselves in buildings they were quickly overwhelmed um, once, now this is towards the end of February, very, very quickly, there's the organization that is going to spring, spring out of this is the Committee of the Movement, which is, is a really cool kind of cult name, <laughs> um, which is going to assume de facto control of the entirety of Kronstadt. It'll be made up primarily of Kronstadt uh, sailors. And they'll be able to, I mean, quite quickly, and I'll get into this a little bit later here, but... Um, the kind of amazing thing in 1917 and in 1921 is that they set up super effective control very, very quickly. And the main reason for this is that they're just they're living on basically a military base where everything is organized by the state. So there aren't uh, there's some of the industries that are there. They can be quickly nationalized or just kind of taken over by worker councils you're basically decapitating the state and replacing it with this committee of the movement most of the roles are known and they add the 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 soviet democratic aspect as well too which they really they really do authentically take to heart here um in it's February. great that they've been running this little micro nation already to be able to just take over when oh, they yeah. decapitate yeah. the state. It's just yeah. everyone knows their role. Yeah, uh, they have the, their own little industry, their own little organization, and now they can just completely take over. It's so unique from uh, you know other types of revolutionary movements that sometimes you're you're stuck with being dependent on other parts of the state, and so you can easily get pressured. But exactly here, yeah. they're kind of independent to a yeah. degree. Yeah, and so the, the the independence of Kronstadt at this point here is interesting because they are still dependent. So the new provisional government in Petrograd, which is only, I mean, a few weeks old at most, um, when they hear about this, they're quite happy about the uprising. They just, they welcome it as part of the generally, general revolutionary fervor, um, but they're also quite alarmed uh, about reports of anarchy, which are basically just kind of wildly overblown. 
and more importantly, the possibility of losing control of the Baltic fleet. Um, that really scares the new, new government because one, they're still at war with Germany. And that's basically, I mean, the Baltic fleet is huge and also the, just the, the access to St. Petersburg. If you lose control of Kronstadt, then St. Petersburg may as well, is going to fall as well too. Um, so they're kind of like, hey, yeah, we're really happy for you guys. Like, keep on going, but just remember who your friends are. Like, don't go too crazy. So they're going to send a deputy from the Duma, this guy by the name of Pepeliev. Pepe, early, yeah, Pepe Liev. <laughs> a member, like <laughs> not Pepe the Frog. <laughs> Pepe the Russian. <laughs> the Russian, yeah. A member of the Constitutional Democrats, definitely the, the cool revolutionary guys. <laughs> uh, so he's, he's dispatched, one, to take stock of the situation, but basically just told by the, uh, by the provisional government, you are, you're the guy, you're our guy, you're going to be in charge of Kronstadt now. Um, so he shows up to Kronstadt. He's he's well received. Hello, comrade. There's this kind of like general kind of I think jubilation in these in February and March. This, I mean, it's an extremely dark time. But there's also this between the provisional government and most revolutionaries. There's a some general goodwill. So he's well received on Kronstadt. Um, but when he presents himself to the committee of the movement and when he pronounces himself. Uh, in Anchor Square, and he says, I'm officially responsible. He says, hello, and I'll be officially responsible for Kronstadt. You'll be under the control of the Duma. He's just kind of laughed off stage, and then he later admits in private to the committee of the movement that they have control of Kronstadt. Um, so in those first few weeks of March, coming back to the organization that's going on, multiple uh, groups, multiple Soviets are created on Kronstadt, although importantly, they're all subordinate to the military Soviet, um, which it in turn was itself more or less subordinate to the Petrograd Soviet. So now we're getting into the kind of uh, hierarchy of power here, where Petrograd Soviet is the place to be. It's where Lenin and Trotsky are hanging out. Um, but again, due to the fact that they're basically this satellite of Petrograd, they have a lot of autonomy. Um, and when they basically laugh Pepeliev off of Kronstadt, the provisional government just says, we can't really do much. We have to keep on finding, we have to keep on financing you um, because we just can't afford to lose you. We can't, we, y you are dependent on us for funds, but you're completely independent because of your strategic position and your, your relative autonomy. Basically codependent. Yeah, exactly. Codependence. Yeah. Um, so again, in the in, as I mentioned, the, the main alignment at this point here that Crunch has mainly aligned with the SRs, um, whose politics uh, still made up the majority of the troops. So including, so not necessarily among the sailor class, but among the sailors who have, I mean, equal an equal voice in the Kronstadt Soviet, um, and the SRs would form the majority of the Kronstadt Soviets. Um, however, increasingly, slowly but surely, the Bolsheviks would. Understand the importance of Kronstadt and start throughout the spring um, increasing their their power quite dramatically to the point that I unfortunately didn't put it down here, but I think they eventually come close to having majority control. And they're going to send this guy who's going to come back again by the name of Fyodor Raskolnikov. It's not his given name. He just <laughs> like Dostoevsky a lot. <laughs> so they're going to send Raskolnikov, uh, the Bolshevik leader. 
Um, and he's going to be the main kind of Bolshevik operative on Kronstadt. Uh, later in 1921, he's going to come back as the commander of the Baltic fleet, but his fate is not all that great. Um, so again, as I was saying, Kronstadt is exceptionally interesting. I think the interest in 1917 here is the level of democratization that sprung forth from the Soviets. So as I said, that kind of uh, ease of control they had, most industries and activities had been, again, under some level of state control. So the transition to control the Soviets was relatively easy. And it was the Kronstadt Soviet that actually um, nationalized most of the private industries. They still obviously, small merchants um, were, were not brought under control of the Soviet. Um, a dramatic example of the democratization was the election of officers to replace those who had either been imprisoned or executed in the uprising. And the, so this actually went against what the provisional government wanted to do. They didn't actually condone it. But again, they really couldn't do much, and they had to resign themselves to this. Uh, the main kind of issue came up when the provisional government said, send us a list of 20 or so officers for each position who you think are most suited, and we will select. And Kronstadt again just said, oh, we've actually already elected everybody because we know them. You know, um, This is something that's really interesting, the kind of election of officers. I think you'll see that in the the democratization of the army happens among the anarchist troops in the Spanish Civil War. And George Orwell has a great passage in Homage to Catalonia where he just says, like, the, the, the fighting quality of these troops uh, was incredible because of just the level of respect and the, the, the meritocracy it generated, the, the, the actual meritocracy it created among, uh, among the fighting men. There's, they're sh- sort of showing uh, an alternative model yeah. that the Soviet Union could develop along. Yeah. as opposed to a top-down model and sort of in line with Marx's thoughts on the workers seizing the means of production and just uh, running it in a sort of collective fashion rather than having this new Bolshevik political hierarchy that's going to develop. Yeah, exactly. Um, so on Kranchai itself, uh, what also spoke to the kind of general level of high level of organization was uh, visitors, uh, even those who were not necessarily sympathetic to the uh, Kronstadt sailors, uh, liberals, and some of the conservatives at the time, there were still kind of right-wing liberals uh, who were present in the Duma, had to admit, they, 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 they all admitted that there was a high level of order and cleanliness. Uh, there were committees that had been set up. So there was uh, the Committee for the Struggle Against Drunkenness and Prostitution, uh, that was specifically set up to combat that image of a disorderly anarchic town. Um, interestingly enough, the, the people who were spreading the rumors of anarchy in Kronstadt were uh, mainly the very kind of bourgeois right-wing newspapers and the Bolshevik newspapers. <laughs> because, Common interest. Yeah, the, the Bolsheviks <laughs> want to be like, oh, it's kind of like SRs, you know, peasants. They don't really know what they're doing. They need us to help them out. Um, so... I love that there's like dueling newspapers oh, on this yeah, tidy yeah. island. And I mean, in 19, <laughs> what's kind of crazy when you're reading about the Russian Revolution is the amount of newspapers. Like everybody, every party has like 10 newspapers. It was everybody the internet has a of the day. Oh my God, it's, it's the insane. best way to spread memes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah everybody had their, their memes. Um, so as the revolution moves on, uh, as 1917 moves on, uh, Kronstadt is going to morph into... Uh, what becomes the 
quote-unquote pride and glory of the revolution. In the July days, there is um, basically a failed coup by a General Kornilov, and it's Kronstadt sailors who are going to free in the uh, aftermath of it. They're going to free Trotsky from imprisonment, along uh, among others. Uh, this is really, so I don't want to dwell really on this at all, but this is what is going to basically shatter this failed coup will um, will shatter the power of the provisional government because it's the Bolsheviks who will organize the defense of the city. And that basically shows to everybody, this is maybe one of the high peaks, so it allows the Bolsheviks to take power in October, but it shows everybody that the liberals, they, they have no actual power. By this point, they've lost most of their support and they've lost the ability to even provide the basic service of defending the city. So everybody's asking themselves, what do you actually do for us? Um, and going into September and October, uh, Kronstadt, the, the sailors having exercised, having created their um, highly democratic form of Soviet society are gonna become known for their ideological commitment and for their just kind of overall zealousness and they'll become these kind of shock troops that the Bolsheviks are going to play, deploy later in uh, in October. Um, they're even so eager that they call for all power to the Soviets in like September and the Bolsheviks are really caught off guard because they're planning to get rid of the provisional government but they're really keeping it low-key. So Kronstadt, they're the ones just kind of yelling in the street like, we want the full revolution <laughs> to happen. Um, so by the time October rolls around, uh, Kronstadt would supply, again, the heavily armed kind of shock troops that would support the Red Guard in establishing Bolshevik control in Petrograd. They'd send about 5,000 sailors would board. This is pretty cool. They'd board landing craft across the bay and just kind of occupy the key bridges in the city. Um, I think this is something the Winter Palace kind of charge is always exaggerated. Like it the Bolsheviks love to make it seem like they charged into machine gun fire, but I think they pretty much just walked in. So they they take part in the takeover of the Winter Palace. But the biggest thing is that the psychological impact is felt. And I think it's, um, oh, what's his name? The guy who wrote um, the, the American, John Reed, who wrote the American, the, the American communist sympathizer who wrote the great account, the 10 days that shook the world. There we go. Um, he, when he was in Petrograd, when this was going on, he said the psychological impact um, when, so in October, when the Bolsheviks are making their push, Kerensky makes a last grasp. He has some troops. The city is surrounded. When people hear that the Kronstadt sailors so shows up, it's like, okay, we we're good. Like we know the psychological impact among the Red Guards, among uh, the citizens of the city is that these, like the, the, the shock troops have arrived and Lenin will turn to them to uh, surround after they've taken part in these bridge captures and taking the winter palace he's going to turn to them to uh, garrison and defend the city and Lenin will admit that he in his eyes they're by far the most capable and loyal troops at his disposal um, but what's what's kind of interesting here is that while they're I think the, the Kronstadt sailors and soldiers are kind of dragged they're they're kind of thrown into it by their own enthusiasm and they're never going to really rally to the bolsheviks so it was always really unclear they were always expressing a general power for what they 
will become their kind of perpetual slogan, all power to the Soviets. This was basically saying all power to these democratic institutions, not all power to the Bolsheviks. And it would be deci- it would be deba- debated on the cr- in the by the Kronstadt Soviet on the 29th of October, uh, but it was never resolved, and it was never resolved if they would officially support uh, the Bolshevik Party. But by this point, by November, things snowball. The Bolsheviks have control, and the kind of screws on opposition are tightened. Um, so from basically from 19, I mean we can go through quickly in 1917 uh, I think it's is it December 1917 that they signed Brest-Litovsk so they sign they'll sign uh, the Bolsheviks will sign a um, ceasefire with the Germans um, so that really shocks the Western powers because all of a sudden now the Germans have one fewer front and they'll start to consolidate their power but very quickly Russia descends into civil war so going from the Russian Revolution to the Civil War. Again, the general context context here is um, Russia is out of World War One officially, but they are now basically facing. They're embroiled in a civil war between the Reds, who are uh, the Bolshevik Soviet forces. Again, kind of concentrated in the cities, and they do have some popular support among the peasantry against what are known as the Whites. So there's a mass kind of emigration from Russia. Uh, generals who leave the army. It's basically uh, an army of officers. An army of officers, exactly, yeah. And also supported by some kind of half-assed expeditionary forces. Yeah. Like, some Cana- like a Although Canadian group is sent. huge amounts of resources. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Like, monetary Absolutely. resources. Yeah. Like, we were talking about in the Battle of Almy, the Brits yeah. doing the financial part. They, yeah. did, they attempted it here as well, but... Not nearly as successful as no. against Napoleon. No, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it kind of speaks. I mean, to the, to the, uh, to the, um, to the credit of, of Trotsky and Co. To be able, it's quite a historical achievement unto itself, to defend this country in these in these conditions. I mean, revolutionary France is maybe one of the closest things that come to it. Um, or, uh, Maoist of, China. Maoist China again, yeah, of defending this, of basically defending this revolution. Uh, going through a period of famine of general again just this you know recovering from this brutally horrific war they've just gone through which would have i mean which shattered the monarchy which would have shattered most uh which would have shattered most states at the time so the civil war is interesting for um the kronstadt kind of garrison because they're going to be relatively dispersed throughout the civil war um there's this kind of idea on both sides so there's an idea and i'll get into the kind of ideological manipulation of kronstadt by anarchists and by uh, i guess tankies communists if you want to call them that um there's this uh, the, the 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 anarchists will say oh they were hardened veterans who fought in 1921 who were present in 1917 there's this kind of like muddling like with any garrison in a civil war so the sailors and soldiers are going to be relatively dispersed so they're used in most instances as a kind of (coughs) excuse me as a kind of praetorian guard inside petrograd petrograd is still a city uh that is not necessarily under siege but is heavily contested there are still strikes that will occur uh challenges to bolshevik authority they'll be used as soldiers in the war itself so 
Um, some Kronstadt sailors and soldiers will be sent on fronts in Siberia, uh, in the Volga region, and on the uh, Polish front. Um, and they're also going to be sent as political agitators. And that was a role that Lenin actually kind of specifically conceived for them. He said, okay, these guys are uh, have a high level, level of kind of political consciousness and awareness, but those are also the people that we fear the most. So let's split them up and send them individually into small villages where they can preach the good word of, uh, of the communist revolution. Um, so in November of 1920, kind of fast forwarding here, um, in November of 1920, the civil war comes to, comes to an end with the defeat of the white general Wrangel. And while the war is over again, Russia is just completely devastated by almost seven years of war and revolution. And in this period between November 1920 and um, February 1921 is just massive kind of the, I guess, any type of cohesion that was any social cohesion, I guess, that you could have in a civil war, that the bottom is falling under. The people are just completely exhausted. There are peasant uprisings that are multiplying in the response uh, to forced grain requisition. So this is one of the important points for the uprising. Um, the the kind of main policy of the Bolsheviks at the time is war communism. So war communism is Lenin called it himself. He called grain requisitioning the essence of war communism. So again, to your point, the worst SARS excesses are just reproduced here on an even more kind of draconian scale where in some cases peasants are kind of pleading with the authorities, with the commissars who are requisitioning their gun at their, their, their grain at gunpoint saying we don't even have seeds for the next harvest. Uh, one peasant, a great quote, will say, if you wanted us to sow our fields, all of our fields, why didn't you just give us iron and salt? Then it would be done. It's kind of like good kind of tongue-in-cheek peasant comment. <laughs> Still manage a bit of humor in those dark times. <laughs> um, but for in Lenin's, I mean, in the, in the ruthlessly, in Lenin's like ruthlessly pragmatic mind, this is necessary because you're in a civil war and who do you feed? You feed the army and you feed the industrial working classes. That's what's going to be done um, to keep this, to, to, to defeat the white armies. Um, so some of these peasant uprisings are pretty huge and the Bolsheviks will never really admit to them, but there's a Cheka, uh, there's, there are Cheka, which is the, um, which is a secret police documenting in one instance what they call a bandit army of over 50,000 men who were engaged in just open hostilities with Red Army troops in the winter of 1920 and 1921. It's a massive force. It's just huge, <laughs> yeah. It's like, the, the, I guess, bandit army, like a ragtag group, just 50,000, <laughs> like this group, just and towns were completely ravaged. Desperation um, breeds. Oh, my God, yeah. And so th these, even these 50,000 men, they never posed a serious threat, mainly because they were... Uh, starving and they just didn't have the equipment so they would be kind of put down quite easily by the Red Army um, but in general the, the state of Russia was just horrendous towns uh, were almost just as ravaged uh, and sometimes in worse condition than the countryside and it was so bleak and so industrial I'm gonna go through a few of the interesting statistics here industrial output was a fifth of the levels of 1913 in that winter of 1920-21 
Um, even the kind of privileged industrial workers received at most 800 grams of bread per day, which is, I think, a lot of bread. But if that's all you're eating, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's like I think it's maybe like, th- like 1,200 calories. Not maybe a very a day. balanced diet, no. especially when you're freezing and yeah. you're working hard. That's definitely not enough calories. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the effects on the Russian population were completely devastating. So Petrograd's population will drop between 1917 and 1921 from 2.5 million to three quarters of a million, so 750,000 people. Wow. Uh, not entirely due, so... Like conscription stuff too? In some, so actually the main driver is there's emigration out of Russia. A lot of it is the urban dwellers who just go back to the countryside. Mm. They're like, we can't, we, we just can't live in the city anymore. We may as well try to survive on scavenging and hunting and foraging. Um, Moscow's population will decline by half. Um, and again, as I said, it's a lot of it is attributed to city dwellers who simply left to return to the countryside. But again, there's war, there's hunger, there's uh, disease. The great kind of irony of this democratic change is that it flew right in the face of the Bolshevik plan for Russia, which was, we will have a revolution, there will be a rapid transformation away from the agrarian mode of life. Um, but instead, it just pushes back into what they would consider more primitive modes of production. And what's also interesting here and something that we'll see on a smaller scale uh, when we come back to Kronstadt is that it's going to create much stronger links between the city and the countryside. So whereas you could have lived, you maybe would have gone into town or you'd been living for some time in Petrograd or in Moscow, um, you were maybe not as aware of what was going on in the countryside. All of a sudden now there's just this massive, I mean millions of people are almost going back Uh, to live in the countryside and they're becoming kind of deeply reacquainted with the situation and newly acquainted with this the horrible conditions of what's going on Um, so it creates this new almost consciousness and also this new consciousness because most people are getting stuff through the black market like most um everything has been put under state control uh the there's almost no kind of you know there's there's no private property. Some of the reforms that peasants are pushing for are, you know, simply basic liberalization of uh, small small exchanges of goods and services. Um, that's not allowed by the Bolsheviks. So these links are being created. And now the winter of 1920, 1921 is going to be one of the coldest and darkest in a long, long time. Uh, in cities, a lot of buildings just simply didn't go without, they just went without heat. Uh, because of the low coal production. Uh, there were reports throughout the city of just people who just froze to death in their apartments. Um, because of the breakdown of industry, it became impossible to find appropriate footwear or clothing. And so this just kind of general, again, social crisis that's going on is exacerbated um, by a solution proposed by Trotsky, who basically decided that as the Red Army was going to be so the Red Army was being demobilized. The Civil War is officially over. His solution is, well, we need to get production up and we need to kind of reestablish order to prevent breakdown. So we're going to have a militarization of labor. So basically, if you were a demobilized Red Army soldier, you would find out in this winter that actually you're being assigned to a labor group 
and uh, either you're in a kind of self-contained labor group chopping down trees, you're being sent into a factory, which I guess would maybe be objectively better because you might be able to warm up next to like a steel foundry or something. Um, or, and, or you were sent, if you were maybe an, an officer, you were sent as uh, basically a goon inside of a factory to make sure that people kept on working. And this created a second crisis that would all lead up into the crisis of 1921, which was that now uh, trade unions basically saw this, and I mean, this is a great, uh, a great political clash that occurs. Trade unions who had been demanding greater autonomy said, okay, you guys are officially trying to crush us and you're trying to break trade unions under control of the Red Army and thus of the state because trade unions were maybe one of the last bastions uh, at this point after the civil war of kind of true uh, politically autonomous groups um, who could express themselves freely and that still held um, a relative degree of power as well too. So there's going to be a great crisis within the party as they're trying to grapple with the demands of trade unions and trade unions are seeing themselves as being crushed. So, this leads into February of 1921. So the social crisis, one of the multiple social crises, reaches the crescendo, its crescendo in February of 1921, as now mass strikes are breaking out throughout Petrograd uh, and Moscow. And again, the winter is especially brutal. And what prompts um, worsening of conditions is that now the railway system is completely disintegrating so moscow actually goes a week without grain any new grain shipments or they go they go a week without any new grain shipments because there are just no trains coming in um so the bolshevik response to the strikes in february of 1921 is completely ruthless uh, thousands are arrested and at this point they have a new they have a new scapegoat which is uh, the Polish and white army agitators. So now that we've consolidated power, we have this convenient scapegoat. And as well as the Mensheviks and SRs, who, uh, if you're now a Menshevik, any Mensheviks and SRs who are still not in prison at this point, who are operating freely, are just associated, are seen as being white agitators. Um, in most cases, the demands are really quite simple. They're just demanding the end of war communism, uh, of war communism, and the liberalization of the economy and the labor market. But the workers can literally not maintain any kind of sustained political action because they're starving, they're exhausted, and they, uh, maybe not most importantly, but equally as importantly, they have no political leadership whatsoever. So whatever political leadership would have maybe exist in 1917 to create an opposition, it's been decapitated whether it's srs anarchists or uh, or mensheviks maybe literally decapitated by the Cheka. um and then the peasants who form the majority of russian society they're not able to really organize it they don't really have any political consciousness so they're not really able to organize either no. so you have both the urban elites and the working class and the peasants just completely dislocated from um any sort of democratic uh, reform any sort of support for trade unions or yeah and again you have these in some cases these bandit armies <laughs> but a lot of the villages have commissars so you have guys with guns in every single village and the peasants themselves don't have the means to 
again, like you said, they, they, yeah, they don't have the means, the consciousness to, to create an actual, an actual resistance of some type. Um, so coming finally back here to Kronstadt. So, um, a lot of what's interesting is at this point, a lot of so sailors and soldiers in Kronstadt, it's almost kind of re reforming. Some of them have been on leave, um, but some of them are returning to their base from deployments. So it regains, it won't regain the numbers that it has in 1917, but the civilian population is still close, hovering around 50,000. And the amount of sailors and soldiers will hover um, somewhere between 20 and 25,000. So there's still a very important garrison there. And their conditions are noticeably better um, than the rest of Russia, but they are going to degrade very quickly in the last months uh, of 1920 as food shortages uh, affect almost everybody except the kind of new Bolshevik aristocracy and notably one of the commanders, actually it might be Raskolnikov, yeah, who he enjoys uh, like three course meals and apparently eats like a half a pound of butter every day or something and like in view like in his palace type thing in view and, and yeah, from anchor square you gotta eat that stuff in the closet <laughs> in private yeah buttered rolls yeah. in the closet <laughs> under the bed or something yeah <laughs> just close the blinds <laughs> <laughs> um so and, and politically in kronstadt bolshevik control which um was never too too firm uh, which wasn't as big an issue during the Civil War because, again, these uh, a lot of these sailors and soldiers, the main kind of driving political force is dispersed. Well, now in 1920, 1921, Bolshevik control is slipping uh, quite quickly. So party membership is low and it's stagnating. They can only count, uh, the party can only count a paltry 650 members in January 1921. So again, out of a potential here of roughly 20,000, and most of these are relatively new members who joined during a mass party drive of 1919. Only 61 of those 650 are members since 1917. Uh, so you only have about 61 kind of veteran Bolsheviks. And only three of those 650 are Bolsheviks uh, prior to 1917. So this is a kind of new... Um, you know, again, the, the, the membership is not especially politically experienced, um, relatively young, and they really don't form that much of a, they don't form that, that, that much of the garrison uh, on Kronstadt. So things aren't going well, as I mentioned, for our friend Fyodor Raskolnikov, who has returned to Kronstadt as commander of the Baltic fleet. Uh, he's still... Um, He's still a dedicated Bolshevik. He had served in the in the Civil War as commander of the Volga Caspian Fleet, and he was notably very close to Trotsky. He was seen as being part of Trotsky's camp. His mission, so, is twofold. When he returns to Kronstadt um, in the last days of 1920, he has to reinvigorate and rebuild the Baltic Fleet. So it suffered some major damage damages. Um, when it was attacked by Admiral Yudinich, who was a white admiral when they tried to um, basically come into the Gulf of Finland. And the fleet itself had kind of fallen to decrepitude as well too. They had, they had pushed back the attack, but uh, the basically the naval forces uh, were not much of a priority. So a lot of the ships were just kind of sitting there. They had not been fixed. Uh, they were kind of falling apart in the harbor. 
and um, also to centralize party control within the administration of the fleet. So he would succeed at neither of these because he faced opposition from Zinoviev, who is a high-ranking uh, a high-ranking Bolshevik and member of the Petrograd Soviet, who he viewed the Kronstadt Soviet under his control. So basically Raskolnikov falls into this um, interstitial battle of power with Zinoviev, and he isn't able to really maintain control, and he's going to be kicked out during a party conference in February of 1921. Um, Raskolnikov would kind of lead a minor life after this, and it's only... It's only interesting because he would, <laughs> in 1939, I think in Budapest, he would fall out of a window to his death, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> that ended up happening to a lot of people, like, yeah. various kinds of yeah. accidents. In, in the 30s, <laughs> many window falls. Yeah. <laughs> and, however, once Raskolnikov is removed, the party administration in, Kron- in Kronstadt basically collapses. Um, I guess he w- must have been the guy. He was he was a from having been president in 1917 uh, from his service in the Civil War. He was seen as a competent administrator, uh, as a good kind of political operative. And I guess from what I read, it seems like he was kind of the, the glue holding whatever shaky structure existed on Kronstadt at this point. Um, so when he's kicked off, Zinoviev, I guess, doesn't really do anything to immediately replace him. And the party administration just completely collapses. At this point, there are already, uh, because of the general discontent, there are already parallel kind of like illegal meetings of ships' crews that are taking point that are taking place. And the party can't do anything to stop them because they don't have committed members. They might have 650 members, but it takes. <laughs> I think committed members means somebody who can walk into a room of like a hundred sailors and tell them to stop and follow the rules. <laughs> you need probably an equal amount of like just as committed guys <laughs> to do that. Um, on top of that as well too, the news of the conditions across the country are very well known in Kronstadt. So again, sailors and soldiers uh, were on leave. They had returned to their villages and towns. Uh, they have been into Petrograd and they're very well aware of the ravages of war, but as well uh, the ravages of the requisitioning. And they're also continuously kind of bombarded by letters. And I think this is not necessarily particular to the Kronstadt garrison, but they're continuously bombarded by letters who are pleading with their sons to intervene in some way. Um, So by late February, sailors from the Petro, Pavlovsk, and Sevastopol battleships will organize a committee and they're going to send a fact-finding delegation to Petrograd to inquire on the conditions of the striking workers and they're going to encounter workers who are uh, starving yet barely able to speak out about their conditions because they're as they're interviewing them they're literally standing next to check agents and a few of them will speak out and decry the conditions it's also plain to this fact-finding mission what's actually going on the strikes at this point and this will come back into the maybe failed timing of the the Kronstadt uprising is that the strikes are kind of dying out Um, again just from that lack of general energy they can't maintain sustained they they can't maintain a sustained strike and also the secret police are cracking down and forcing people back into the factories Um, so the things kind of come to, to, to to a head on February 28th of 1921 
during a general meeting of ship's crews chaired by one Stepan Petrochenko, a senior naval clerk, and Pyotr Perapelkin, a sailor electrician. The delegation is going to uh, present its findings to the general meeting, and it's at this meeting that the famous uh, Kronstadt resolutions, or also known as the Petropavlovsk uh, resolutions are adopted. So these are basically a series of uh, 15 demands that they're going to draft and that they will attempt to spread. The Bolshevik authorities will be become aware of. Uh, and so I won't go through all of them, but basically what they're going to do is they are going to um, demand the most radical demand that they're making is the first one they're going to say in view of the fact that the present Soviets do not represent the will of the workers and peasants to re-elect the Soviets immediately by secret voting with free canvassing among all workers and peasants before the elections. Um, they'll go on to demand the end of war communism um, to elect a commission to review the cases of those who are imprisoned in jails and concentration camps uh, to ask for the free uh, to institute the free labor of move uh, of, of labor so to permit free artisan production with individual labor basically just a kind of general liberalization and a return of power to the soviets they're still their message is not anti-communist they basically want to return to the roots of the 1917 revolution but this for the bolshevik authorities is completely untenable there's no way they're going to agree to any of these and there's um, no way they can achieve their no. their idea of making no. Russia into this superpower by uh, liberalizing the economy along those lines. No, exactly. And they know that if they even some type of even allowing greater um, political freedoms and political autonomy is just going to mine their own power. So, I mean, this is not something that that they will really seriously uh, entertain. Um, one of the charges, so immediately. Once these resolutions are spread, they're going to be kind of spread throughout the surrounding areas of Kronstadt. And immediately what happens is kind of, it's almost kind of instantaneous within a couple of days, the Bolsheviks will respond. And one of the first charges they'll make is that these are kind of inexperienced uh, anarchist saboteurs. And this is a bridge to just allow me to kind of explain the composition of the Kronstadt at this point. So these are still very like politically experienced uh, veterans, sailors, and troops. So in the cases, there aren't that many um, good records of the makeup at this point of the Kronstadt garrison. But in the case of the crews of these battleships, Petropavlovsk and Sevastopol, that would count uh, thousands of sailors. Of the approximately 2,000s for whom the enlistment date is known, only 137 had been recruited between 1918 and 1920. Uh, the remaining had all enlisted during or prior to 1917, and with 50% of the total enlisting between 1914 and 1916. Uh, for the entire Baltic fleet, uh, the numbers aren't as clear, but uh, Getzler, who was one of the main... Um, who one of the main kind of authorities on this here puts the number of veteran sailors recruited during or prior to 19 at, at around 80 percent so basically all that to say is that these aren't kind of idealistic 17 year olds these are a, a lot of the people who are drafting or at least the, the political vanguard in Kronstadt are veterans from 1917 uh, to a surprisingly large extent um, 
So on March 1st, after the resolutions are drafted, there is a meeting at Anchor Square with over 15,000 soldiers and sailors present. And this will basically just confirm the complete collapse of the communist authorities on the island. Mikhail Kalinin, a high-ranking party member, is going to present himself and try to attempt to negotiate some type of return of control, but he's basically heckled off the island. And he claims when he starts to make a speech, he realizes what's going on. And he just says, I've lost my voice. I can't address you. So they just laugh him off, kind of like they did to a few other people before that. Um, by March 2nd, the island is completely under control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very tough crowd. Well, I mean, you can't walk up and just say, I have a sore throat. Sorry. <laughs> Um, so by March 2nd, the island is completely un- under control of the rebel forces uh, who've given themselves an immediate objective of rebuilding and re-electing the Kronstadt Soviet. And they also have the ongoing objective. They obviously know they need to... They're, they're pretty astute. They know they have to spread their message. So they're going to send people out into the neighboring uh, towns on the opposite shores and into Petrograd. A lot of these guys are going to be arrested pretty swiftly. Um, once Kalinin, who was laughed off the stage, returns to the mainland to report on the state of affairs, uh, martial law is basically proclaimed instantaneously for the Petrograd area. There's an armored train filled with loyal, loyal officer cadets is sent to the town of Oranienbaum uh, to suppress the first naval air squadron stationed there, which had enthusiastically supported the Kronstadt resolutions. Uh, this was actually quite a blow to them because Kronstadt was aware that this naval air squadron was sympathetic and they were hoping that kind of pockets of sympathy would spread and they'd actually have, it wouldn't, they, they did not want to fight by themselves and they did not want to, they actually did not want to fight either. They just hoped the balance of power would tilt and force the Soviets to negotiate with them, the Bolsheviks to negotiate with them. Um, Kronstadt's, Kronstadt's road and ferry accesses are corned off and a anti-Kronstadt propaganda c- campaign is immediately mounted to discredit the sailors and soldiers. Uh, this is, again, all occurring on the 2nd and 3rd in March. So they're, like, responding very quickly to this. Um, again, the uranium bomb, uh, uranium bomb suppression represents a significant blow for them. Um, but, again, they had no illusions that they would quite... Um, what did I write here? Oh, God. Um... Sorry, so that was one blow to Kronstadt was that the uh, the suppression of the Orion bomb air squadron forces. But what they did have in their favor was the warming weather. So in early March, the temperatures were rising. And basically, this kind of meant that the ice access to the island would be as impossible for a sufficiently large force. There, all, there would only be the two road accesses. The Soviets themselves, the Bolsheviks themselves, were keenly aware of this. And this actually explains a lot of the rapid mobilization um, of soldiers and Cheka troops leading up to what would be the first assault. So time is kind of ticking, interestingly enough, against the Bolsheviks. Even though the, the Kronstadters know they're kind of setting themselves up to be besieged, the, 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 the Bolshevik high command is well aware that uh, if they lose the ice, it's kind of a really weird situation, but it's like, <laughs> they lose the ice and they have this even if they can eventually starve them out or siege them or whatever they have this tumor within their body politic that can m- metastasize exactly. and spread these ideas and yeah. the ideas are yeah. what's scary more so than 
um, this handful of soldiers. Oh, exactly. And that's what that's what Lenin will realize later is that um, if that had spread to the peasantry, if that kind of, again, this idea of this highly advanced, this like kind of specialized vanguard spreads and meets up with the peasant uprisings or uh, the, 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 the peasant sentiment, then that can light a spark that can topple. Uh, that can topple their pow- their power for sure. So, the main thrust of the Soviet counter propaganda is to paint the Kronstadt officers as white agents seeking to overthrow Soviet power. Um, Zinoviev will dismiss the uprising as the work of puppets who dance at the behest of white generals. But interestingly, privately, the Soviet brass, uh, the, again, the Bolshevik brass, they're they're very well aware that it isn't a white plot and Lenin himself on the 15th of March after the first two assaults um, he'll admit in private that the Kronstadt rebels do not want the white guards and they do not want our state power either so they know that this isn't a white plot however what they didn't know at the time when they're making these statements is that there were um, communications between leaders of Kronstadt and SR exiled SR groups who were also indirectly working with Russian emigres and with remnants of the white army. And there was a paper trail of this. And, but they never found these papers. They found them much later after they had crushed the uprising. If they had found them, they could have launched this, just said, oh, haha, see, they are, they are saboteurs. Um, but the, at the same time, the paranoia about white infiltration is not unwarranted because there was there were active attempts by the emigre communities, by the remnants of whatever was left of the white armies. They were still trying to create general instability. Ironically, these whites would, many of them, these emigres would establish themselves in Germany and then they would go on to be uh, rabid anti-Semites um, because of the, uh, the Jewish um, participation in the communist revolution. Yeah. And then these Russian whites would inform the general anti-Semitism that was brewing in early 20th century Germany, which would contribute support to the Nazi party (laughs) and lead to the next great (laughs) conflict. Right. So these uh, Russian whites, they, they're just the the gift that keeps on giving to the world. Yeah. yeah. They never know. They never quite know what they're doing, but yeah, they just (laughs) just know that they hate a lot of different kinds of people. Exactly. They hate the Bolsheviks. They hate the Jews. They hate uh, the Germans. They hate the Jews because they think they're German. Yeah. They hate (laughs) basically everyone. The stupid, ignorant peasants who didn't side with them. The soldiers who didn't side with them. Everyone's wrong with them. Yeah. And the, the, the Jews and Bolshevik one is good because you can just amalgamate them together. Yeah. It becomes one simple, <laughs> a two-in-one. Exactly. So in the weeks, so basically there's this propaganda, this Bolshevik propaganda campaign going on because they understand that there is, they know there's a general sympathy. The The word has already spread about what's going on at Crunchchat. They know there's a general sympathy among the working class, among a lot of the troops, the Petrograd garrison, the armies that are around the city. Um, that this might spread quite quickly. So there's a very tight cordon that's established around Kronstadt while at the same time an offensive is prepared. The Petrograd naval base, so on the city proper, is put under lockdown. And a lot of the sailors, um, one testimony from a, a sailor says, yes, everybody 
all of us were on the side of Kronstadt. And if they hadn't done that, we would have. If they hadn't basically put all our guns away and kept us under machine gun guard, we would have risen up as well, too. Um, Kronstadters who are returning from leave at this time are, I guess, maybe luckily or I don't know what kind of punishment was meant out to them, but they are intercepted at the Petrograd train stations. And to quell the possibility of workers creating chaos, there are some concessions made. So the, Bol- the Bolsheviks will give will basically give out extra rations and say, try, don't go on strike in the next in the next few days. <laughs> so on March 5th, the Russian 7th Army is placed under the control of the young uh, Mikhail Tukhachevsky. And this is the army that is basically being marshaled to crush uh, Kronstadt. He's a distinguished young commander who had fought on the Polish front during the Civil War. Uh, battle plans, again, this immediate kind of reaction. Battle plans had already been underway since the second. Uh, but apart from the daunting task of assaulting an ice-locked fortress, uh, he needed to bolster the quality of his troops. Uh, most of the 7th Army was, and again, back to this kind of situation of labor groups, most of the 7th Army was being demobilized. So its soldiers are mostly peasants. They're mostly sympathetic to the Kronstadt Kronstadter resolutions and they also want to go home and they don't want to fight <laughs> these guys who have a bunch of guns over an icy path uh, talk about a challenge oh right? god <laughs> yeah so what they what he does is he girds he he has this like girdle of cheka troops communist party members and officer cadets who are known to be i guess these young kind of nerds who are very enthusiastic uh, the cheka troops are there with machine guns to machine gun uh, people who don't who uh, who will retreat or surrender. Um, so now we get into closer. The first assault is going to take place on March 7th. Between March 5th and March 7th, negotiations, any type of negotiations that could have occurred, break down very, very quickly. So by the 7th, the Bolsheviks are committed to crushing them by force. So the defensive capabilities at Kronstadt are very impressive. Uh, the total fighting force is somewhere around 13,000 soldiers and sailors at this point, uh, with an additional 2,000 men drawn from the civilian population. The makeup of the island, and I'll, I didn't describe it properly at first, it's kind of, it's in the bay and it's long, it's about 8 miles long, m- maybe 2 miles wide. So it fi- it forms this kind of long shape in the middle of the bay, pointing towards Petrograd. The Gulf of Finland, where it sits in, is relatively narrow, so the approaches are quite difficult. From the southern and northern side, the shortest pass is about eight kilometers or five miles. There, no, uh, yeah, eight kilometers. Sorry. So it's there's no easy path to get here. Um, there are multiple fortresses that ring the island surrounded by high walls looking over the main road approaches in the bay so the road approaches are basically unthinkable because you're getting funneled into cannon and machine gun fire Uh, they could rely on 135 cannon and 68 machine guns that were obviously well positioned as well as the powerful armament of the Sevastopol and Petropavlos battleships which were each equipped with a dozen 12 inch guns and 16 120 millimeter guns the only downside for the Kronstadters were that these ships were frozen in the harbor and they weren't as effective if they if they'd been free on the ice. However, they could still use them as kind of long-range artillery. Yeah, they're like giant, Just they're like solidified alti- artillery yeah. forts, basically, <laughs> yeah. at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Soviets, and 
on the other hand, when it gets into an artillery battle, they only had one important artillery base that could strike Kronstadt, Kronstadt, the Kresnaya Gorka, which boasted four working 12-inch guns. So you're already looking at a battle of 24 to four in the 12-inch gun category. Um, on top of the two two main battleships, the Kronstadt force was also comprised of 10 total ships, um, which could easily be deployed to win an artillery duel or naval attack if the battle went on and the ice was able to be uh, broken up. Um, so again, as I said, the approaches were very difficult over wide open ice terrain. Uh, basically, the greatest weakness of the Kronstadt defenses were that they were in a siege position and by this point in early March, they were already running low in supplies. They'd been blockaded. They didn't have a lot of supplies to start with. They were starting to rely on potatoes they were growing on the island. So you know you're in kind of in desperation mode if you're eating like the small potatoes that you're growing in the winter. Um, so in the evening of the 7th, this is when the order is given that uh, these guys have been taken care of. The, the artillery exchange begins. A winter storm grows stronger throughout the evening and the artillery assault would give way to the first attempt to take Kronstadt in the early hours of the 8th. So this bombardment goes kind of throughout the night and then early in the morning of the 8th, 20,000 Red Army troops, Cheka soldiers and officer cadets will make the perilous crossing from both the northern and southern approaches. Now, 20,000, if you're talking about attacking a f highly fortified defensive position versus 12,000, like, those are not... No, those are not like, numbers. overwhelming, like, <laughs> 10 to 1 <laughs> yeah. invasion force to deal with that kind of situation. Yeah. So, basically, what happens is to be expected. They're met with devastating artillery and machine gun fire. Most of the regular troops either attempted to retreat despite the threats to advance from the Cheka... Or some of them actually, if any actually got closer, they tried to defect to Kronstadt. <laughs> um, now the defenders are pummeling the attacking force, so it just becomes a super horrific scene where the artillery is breaking up uh, the ice in the Gulf of Finland. So people are just falling. They're in. just falling into oh the God, what hell. the ice. It's just a horrible. Um, so they they retreat. It's a complete disaster. Uh, there's a brief pause. On the ninth, do they say how many they lose in that initial assault? I I only have Did the total amounts. <laughs> I only have the total amounts, but yeah. if there's there there are going to be three assaults. Yeah, I'm sure this one was. Uh, I don't know actually. The I think most of the casualties were sustained in the actual taking of it, mm. because that's when the most the continuous exactly the most continuous fighting occurred. I think here they just got spooked. They. Um, you know, if you see guys get swallowed alive, but I'm sure there were suff they suffered devastating casualties. Um, there was a brief pause on the 9th, and this was actually because the 10th Congress of the Communist Party was opening in Moscow. So they, I guess they needed to debate what are we going to do about this Kronstadt <laughs> problem. Lenin said, oh, at the opening of the, of the Congress said, oh, it'll be solved in a few hours. Somebody apparently came up to him and he said, okay, we'll need to discuss this. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so by the 10th, they had, re they had uh, marshaled some reinforcements at both the northern and southern banks. Uh, some of them had come from as far as uh, Nizhny Novgorod, which is 300 kilometers east of Moscow. So they might have been alerted before, but they're making like, there's troops making like a 700 kilometer journey to get here. 
because they realize how desperate it is. They're even members of the 10th Congress. So delegates, to the, I think about 300 delegates to the, to the Congress who will go to Kronstadt to fight uh, because they realize that it can't be allowed to, uh, to continue. So on the 10th, um, an, an, an artillery barrage opens the assault, um, which would also be repelled with heavy casualties for the attackers. So they're trying, this, again, just to get any type of foothold. But as soon as they do grab a foothold at the base of the walls, they're just annihilated. Um, and as the day progresses, there's a heavy fog that rolls in. And any type of full-scale assault is just made rendered completely infeasible. So the Red Army is going to settle for sporadic assaults and bombardments by artillery and planes. And there's actually one in the fog. There's a Red Army pilot who lands on Kronstadt, gets shot at by a bunch of guys, and then takes off again and makes it out alive. <laughs> Super luckily. Why did he land? Because he thought he was landing. He, on his own just, base. The fog was so heavy, he had no idea where he was, or he thought he was somewhere else. Oh, yeah. my God. Just this hilarious, like, <laughs> yeah. weird moment. So... Well, Kronstadt is successfully is successful in repelling these initial assaults. Ammunition and fuel supplies are dwindling, uh, along with food. So orders were given to stop shooting at planes, which was obviously a waste from the beginning, and for the civilian population to use as little fuel and electricity as possible. By the second week of March, so we're getting in past, again, the 10th and the 11th, medical supplies had run out, uh, and the casualties, while not horrendous on the side of the defenders were mounting steadily um the weaker soviet artillery had managed to score some significant hits uh, most notably the one that struck the sevastopol battleship and killed 36 sailors so it's just this kind of slow you're just in this slow grind in this besieged city and you're running out of food um on the 16th finally tukhachevsky assembled between what is estimated to be there's no unfortunately clear numbers on how many soldiers he marshaled, but he es- he assembled what is believed to be about 50,000 men, put 35,000 on the southern shore, 15,000 on the northern shore. The defenders at this point could still count their numbers at about 14,000, but again, hunger, exhaustion, general demoralization had really just sapped their energy. And now on the 16th, food is, there's barely no food left. Um, morale among the Soviet troops on the other hand, was markedly better. They had been bolstered, one, by loyal newcomers, these guys who had been brought in specifically because they were known to be loyal uh, Bolshevik troops. They had been issued excellent equipment. They were wearing kind of like white uh, winter camouflage. Uh, they had been given extra rations, and they were eager to finish the siege. A lot of them just were so pissed off at this point that they were like, well, clearly the only way for us to go home at this point now is to crush these guys. So if that's what we have to do, we'll do it. Um, so at 2 p.m. on the 16th, the artillery barrage begins uh, before what is a three-pronged assault on the southern, eastern, and northern approach of the island. Um, in the barrage, both of the Sevastopol and Petropavlovsk battleships take important hits, which would not disable them, but would kill many dozen sailors. Uh, by the early morning of the 17th, uh, so this battle is going to go on throughout the evening, by the early morning of the 17th, two of the island fortresses had been captured by officer cadets who had slowly crawled, just painstakingly crawled over the wet ice. Uh, and later in the day of the 17th, 
the fog lifts up, so this is a lucky kind of change of situation for the defenders, who kind of look out and all they see is this massive army, so they can at least choose their targets, but there are too many, there's too much to shoot at, they can't concentrate their fire on any one place. Um, it still, however, leads to the horrific situation of the ice being opened up in the artillery barrage, and on this instance there are reports of entire battalions that were actually annihilated. Uh, just sucks. Like one one battalion had five survivors. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty crazy. Um, so by noon of the 17th, most of the outer fortresses had been captured, but the attackers now had to deal with the second ring of defense, which were the Kronstadt city walls, which gave the defenders a wide open view of the space between the fortresses and the city. However, they were just overwhelmed at this point. The gate of the city walls are breached, and by the afternoon, uh, they've penetrated into the kind of heart of Kronstadt. By the evening, a fierce battle is raging for the Kronstadt HQ. And it's kind of at this point that people start to jump ship. Um, Eleven members of the Kronstadt Revolutionary Committee, which was the main organizing force uh, in the Kronstadt Soviet, it includes uh, Petroshenko and the um, members who drafted the resolutions, they uh, flee and they head across the ice towards Finland, which is uh, on a map. It looks relatively close, but still really far. And you yeah, still have to cross dead the ice of winter. Too. <laughs> dead of winter. Yeah. Um, once the defenders, and again, once they learned of this, most of them would either attempt to flee or surrender to the Soviet forces. So once they hear that the leadership is yeah. gone, things just crumble. The, the 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 battle's been dragging on for too long. So the kind of uh, so. The consequences of this getting to casualties closest estimate for soviet losses over the course of the three main assaults from the 7th to the 17th is around 10,000 killed missing and wounded that's crazy for a domestic <laughs> insurgency yeah. and it, it's it puts it around it puts it up with some of the worst battles of the civil war uh condensed in a relatively i mean it's from the 7th to the 7th to the 17th but it's very quick moments of combat um for the defenders, there are no accurate casualty numbers, but the estimates range from between 600 to 2,500. Um, most of the deaths, however, would have likely occurred. They actually did not sustain, the numbers are really shoddy, but it's not believed they sustained a lot of casualties in the actual fighting. They had just an excellent defensive position. The artillery wasn't sufficient, didn't do a lot. Uh, when they were actually taken over, they were a lot of them just surrendered when it was clear the situation was hopeless, most of them would have been would have been killed afterwards where there was just kind of probably a good half day of just massacres that occurred as they let out, as the, the Red Army troops just uh, had their way with them. Um, so if the fighting had gone on uh, and this attack of the 16th had been repelled, casualties probably would have been way worse because Trotsky had authorized and was preparing a chemical gas balloon attack. So air and balloons. So in the end, there's a decent Sounds amount... risky near the sea when the, where the oh, winds yeah. change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm totally convinced he was probably planning to do it like while the assault was going yeah. on too. Like You're in the Red Army, you yeah, show up and you're like, back. oh yeah, here are the balloons. Oh yeah. And then you fall into the ocean. <laughs> Just into Petrograd. <laughs> yeah, it could have blown right into Petrograd. That's true. As you're sinking in the water, you just see Trotsky's face. 
you serve the revolution <laughs> comrade oh god <laughs> so this is but I've, I've been talking yeah. for a while now so i'm going to wrap it up but the the consequences of this there's a, a a large contingent of the Kronstadt defenders who are going to end up as refugees in Finland. Uh, the survivors who are captured on the island, a lot of them will just be sent to um, gulags or concentration camps and uh, will just suffer horribly. Um, hundreds will be uh, executed in the days after the takeover of the island. Those who did make it out uh, would mostly stay uh, I think Petroshenko, one of the main leaders that we talked about, is going to stay in Finland for 25 years. But none of them are ever able... If they try to return, they're sent to prison. Uh, none of them want to return, and none of them are really able to do anything else afterwards, unfortunately. Some of them will meet up uh, with emigre social, uh, socialist revolutionary groups or even white army groups as well, too, um, who will welcome them. On the Soviet side, so the biggest thing of Kronstadt is that it basically forces Lenin. will call it the light, uh, the li- the light that showed reality uh, to be what it was. So he, what he meant by this was that this crisis showed that there was a deeper social crisis. It won't necessarily motivate what's called the new economic policy. I think it would probably happen regardless, but it lets them know they do have to. They do have to abandon war communism, if only because it's going to uh, lead to a total social collapse. Uh, It'll also be probably the last main resistance to Bolshevik power until the Hungarians in 1956. And it has that same significance. So I think that the general significance of Kronstadt in the popular imagination and definitely in kind of like leftist uh, political imagination is that it's this this anarchist libertarian uprising against the authoritarian Bolshevik tendencies, even though the anarchist, any kind of organized anarchist movement wasn't really present. uh, They were really claiming a kind of return to the roots, communist uprising. Uh, It'll shatter the illusions, the illusions, the beliefs of a lot of um, communists such as Emma Goldman, um, who had been present throughout the revolution It'll show them that uh, basically the, the the Bolsheviks will do anything to retain power, and that not, there might not be any alternative to their authoritarian control. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, we could probably go on here a little bit, but that's that's it. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, really, a, a good key takeaway is just when you compare the fact that there were roaming gangs of peasants that were unpolitically motivated and they had greater numbers than the the Kronstadt defense uh, forces Uh, and yet the Soviets were, uh, the Bolsheviks were much more concerned by these Kronstadt rebels just goes to show that they, they felt threatened by any kind of politically motivated force within uh, their their uh, territory and especially one that found its roots in the military that they had relied on for so long throughout the civil war and for their power base after the civil war oh yeah absolutely and that's that's exactly at the 50,000 kind of 
I don't want to use the word unenlightened, but just 50,000 peasants who are, again, don't have the political experience, uh, aren't able to, again, formulate demands like the Kronstadt uh, garrison was able to, to, to formulate and then to have the objectives of consoling power and spreading their message. Uh, it's huge. And I mean, again, they also, from the very beginning, they're occupying this island that is just this kind of weird, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, this, this, this island that is, like you kind of said, it is allowed to be this almost separate society that can experiment. And in 1917, they're definitely able, they have some kind of glorious months in 1917 where they um, have just an unbelievable level of democracy, but that is a huge threat. And it's interesting, it's perceived as a huge threat by the Tsarist authorities, and it's perceived as a huge threat by the Bolsheviks as well, too. And that's why, I mean, the, the attempts to negotiate, it lasts, the, 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 the attempts from the 5th to the 6th of March are basically just really shut down, like, right away. Because they make the same, I mean, almost the same kind of ridiculous demands as restore restore the king. Yeah. They just make demands, like, completely give up. Like, no, just... We will negotiate with you if you agree to completely disarm and, you know, give up your demands. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not negotiating. You're yeah. just, going to do what we tell you to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that was that was a fantastic story. Yeah. And if uh, listeners, if you have any comments or questions about the Kronstadt Rebellion, uh, please send them to us. And we will definitely tap back into the Russian Revolution and uh, the Soviet Union in general in the future because there are so many interesting stories there. Yeah. And so uh, we will be back next time with some more interesting uh, historical uh, stories and anecdotes for you. So we will talk to you then. Awesome. Thank you.